Welcome to bonus episode 446 of the Cyber Law Podcast. This is going to be an interview with the, the man who helped, really, who led and created the team that drafted the U.S. National Cybersecurity Strategy. And we're going to ask him, that's Chris Inglis, if he can tell us a little bit more about the strategy. And, you know, now that he's out of government, I'm hoping he'll be a little candid about what will likely work and what's going to be particularly difficult. Chris is the first national cyber director the U.S. has ever had, and that's because he was the obvious candidate for that job when it was created. He was the former deputy director of the National Security Agency for seven years. He was a member of the Cyber Solarium Commission that has shaped so much of our cybersecurity legislation in recent years. He's got a host of other accomplishments that I'm not going to go into, but he obviously knows this field and has shaped this field longer than practically anybody. And I'll just remind everyone that the views we're about to express here do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or our pets. So I'm speaking for myself and Chris for himself. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Very much for the warm welcome, if not to the overly generous introduction. <laughs> I sometimes say that the longer I live, the longer my introductions get. And I'm sort of aiming for an introduction introduction that is longer than the speech that I give after it. That hasn't happened yet, but we're getting close. So let's just jump into the report. It's got five big elements about what the U.S. should do to improve cybersecurity. And first is defending our critical infrastructure. Second is disrupting the attackers. Third one is shaping the market to deal with all of the bad security decisions that the market is full of. The fourth is a grab bag of things that would improve resilience for our cyber infrastructure. The fifth is what we should be doing internationally. And I'm going to say, really, there's a sixth, which is implementation. How is this strategy going to get implemented? I think, Chris, if it's okay with you, I want to go to the things that have been most controversial since this was rolled out. It's already getting a lot of press. I have to confess that I crowdsourced a lot of my questions. So a lot of people on Twitter and on LinkedIn have suggested questions and I'm trying to combine them, but they they fell into a bunch of themes. And let me let me start though and let you talk about why we needed this strategy. It we had one from the Trump administration and actually this report is a strategy is is generous in saying that it builds on what the Trump administration's strategy said. But why did we need a new one and what's new in it? Well, I think, first of all, I think you're right. It does build on the past. And I think that cyber, thankfully, remains a nonpartisan, bipartisan issue. But the two big moves in this strategy that build on that past that are different than the past is that number one, we levy an expectation that those who build and deliver the foundational capabilities, what we call the cyberspace internet plus, they have a responsibility to attend to inherent resilience and robustness. The users alone can't actually add that well after the fact. They don't have the resources and it will never scale. Right? 99% or something in that range of the businesses in the United States are small businesses, 25 people or less. They do not have the wherewithal to understand, to develop, to deploy, to sustain defenses of the digital infrastructure that underpins their businesses, leaving alone what individuals do and what national security functions also ride on top of this. Second big move is we need to incentivize once and for all 
resilience by design, as opposed to preferring reaction and response as our primary way of dealing with frailties in this system. Those two big moves call out for an ambitious strategy, and it is ambitious. Some of the criticisms, I think, uh, well-placed, are that it, it actually calls for quite a lot of work to be done, in part because that work that should have been done years ago, if not decades ago, wasn't done. It's high time that we get on with doing it. There's no fault in having broad aspirations so long as we make forward progress. Okay, that indeed sounds like the most important. This is a very substantive report, and there's a lot of stuff in it. But if I had to identify the headlines, those would be the headlines. And that's certainly what's getting reaction from people. Let's start with the question of how we impose these obligations on the people who can afford to carry them for the people who don't have the resources to do so. If I'm understanding what the report says, it says we should put a burden of liability on stakeholders who can do this, and we should pick people who have the market power to to make a difference, not the downstream suppliers, not the, if, if I'm getting this right, upstream consumers. That means you're going to need legislation, and the legislation is going to have to pick out people who sit in that catbird seat in each supply chain. Is that really what we're talking about? Well, I don't know that you necessarily have to have legislation. It will be helpful in some cases required, but I think there are already authorities within the executive branch that can stand into this. Like we saw that in the case of the Colonial Pipeline event, mm -hmm. that there were underutilized, if not unutilized, authorities on, on behalf of the Transportation Safety Administration, Security Administration, that needed to be employed. So I think we need to use those first before we seek perhaps something that's additive. I'm confident we will get to the place where legislation will not simply be useful, it might be necessary. Let me, though, put regulation in the larger context that it must be considered in. First, you have to give voluntary efforts a chance to stand in. Now, those voluntary efforts can oftentimes achieve a greater degree of efficiency and effectiveness because both the heart and the spirit are willing, and, and I think you need to let that play out. Market forces increasingly are playing a role in this. You need to let that play out and then apply regulation as what then is required to extend from that point only when necessary and only to the degree necessary. We don't regulate for regulation's sake, but there are two further attributes that are really important. Any of this needs to be done with a high degree of consultation with the regulated industries, not so much to seek their permission, but to seek their advice and counsel to make sure you're regulating the right things and that the desired return on investment will in fact be acquired. And two, you need to do some harmonization to make sure that, especially for these industries, most of them who operate across multiple jurisdictions, that you're not regulating them twice or three times or four times, not just within the federal bureaucracy of the United States, but between federal, state, local, and between the United States and others who regulate in this world. And those all sound like they're kind of table stakes for the industry if they're going to accept or stop lobbying against regulation. They want to make sure that the regulation is one regulation that rules them all and not 14 different kinds. There's a reasonable expectation for part of industry. Yeah. So I agree that that's something that they're going to want, but they're also not going to want regulation if they can avoid it. And so the question will be, what legal authority is there? And sometimes there's legal authority, depending on whether this is a, a federally regulated industry or not. There is federal regulation in 
energy, but it's not complete. There's federal regulation in telecom, and that's more complete. But it is a bit of a dog's breakfast, whether there's authority. People must have made this argument, and some of the regulators probably made the the argument. Did they say, we're not sure we have the authority? So the argument that it is presently incomplete and presently incoherent is correct, but that is not something that should deter us from moving forward. We do need to complete the picture to make sure that we deliver the resilience and robustness that the American American people expect, and that quite frankly, we, we should ensure for those life critical, safety critical functions that are dependent upon digital infrastructure. And the fact that it's hard and that we haven't done it well in the past doesn't mean that it's not still useful and necessary in the future. So, to the degree that this is ambitious, you know, I think that that is a proper tag. So, ambitious is one thing. Going to the Supreme Court to argue that you actually have authority at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or the EPA to regulate the cybersecurity of the power or water industry, that's a, that's a long haul. And it's going to be politically controversial and it might not work, especially with this Supreme Court and some of the recent doctrines that they put forward. But it is still the necessary course. And I, I don't I don't imagine that we're going to have to go to the Supreme Court, but it is still the necessary course. We have seen that market forces can deliver great results, but they don't deliver sufficient results to give us safe cars, to give us safe road systems, to give us airplanes that are safe to the degree that we want them to be safe. They'll never be perfectly safe. They'll never be perfectly secure. But to the degree that we can, by design, make them inherently resilient and robust, there is further work to be done. In the voluntary approaches, the market forces alone have thus far shown themselves unable to deliver the goods. Yep. We have done this before. It's not without precedent. We've done it for 25 years. <laughs> okay, so the, the places that I would say there's almost no colorable regulatory authority over the industry as an industry is the IT sector. You know, at various times, gotten it itself excluded from being a critical infrastructure industry, and which is very unenthusiastic about suddenly having regulation. How do you reach cloud providers? How do you reach Microsoft, uh, Oracle, however, you know, all of the big software providers? Is there a regulatory handle that would induce them to change behavior? Well, at the moment, there isn't a clean one, a crisp one. Otherwise, we would cite that and say, let's get on with the application of that. I think to my earlier point, you need a degree of consultation with those providers to understand what the points of influence must be. Yeah, We all know what we want the gauges on the dashboard to say. We're less comfortable understanding what we should actually attach our expectations to. And, and a discussion with cloud service providers, with the major software providers who provide this at commodity scale. And if they provided resilience and robustness as an inherent property of that would solve a lot of ills in this space, not all of them, but a lot of them, is I think the right step, the right and necessary first step. What this strategy really says is we need to be able to regulate as a last resort in order to improve cybersecurity in a whole bunch of fields. And if we don't have the authority or the courts say that we need more authority, our view is we have to go to Congress to get it because the alternative is we'll never have the security that we need. That's right. And, and, I, and I caution against using the word regulation as a stand-in for all the things that have to happen. That can be, out of context, a blunt force instrument, and, and we don't need that. What we need is an ability to specify what we think the required attributes of our 
critical infrastructure are, and then find the means by which we will specify those and deliver those. Sometimes the standing authorities that exist within the regulators in the federal bureaucracy are sufficient. Sometimes we're going to find that they're insufficient and we need to therefore go further and impose what might be regulation, statutory-based regulation, so be it. But we're going to have to walk our way forward into that space, not knowing exactly how that's going to turn out in terms of the details, but knowing full well that that's the course we have to take. So I, I saw an early draft, not a really early draft, but I did get a chance to comment on this along with, I'm sure, a lot of other people. And th- this idea was present in in the early drafts as well. I would have thought that you got pushback, not just from outside reviewers, but inside the administration, that this was not the most obvious outcome. And how hard was it to persuade the rest of the administration that this is the direction that they needed to go? It was challenging for all the reasons that you cite or opine. I think what you would have seen added from version one of this strategy to ultimately what was version five was a much greater focus on the need for consultation and harmonization and the introduction of this concept of baseline requirements that might then aid in a bet harmonization, all of which is work to be done. The details, kind of the devil still remains in the details. But in every case where there was pushback or concern raised, the question that was posed was, well, what's the alternative? Yeah. And there weren't any good alternatives. Uh, we have tried just about everything else. This is the necessary road that lies before us. Again, we cannot, must not use regulation as a blunt force instrument. It must be used when and where necessary. It must be used in a degree uh, with with the consultation that's required to make sure that we deftly apply it. And it must actually strive for harmonization to be efficiently applied. We don't regulate for regulation's sake, but regulate we will if that's required to generate and deliver for the American people what they expect in in the cyber systems that they make use of on a daily basis. So one of the one of the Twitter questions was sort of there's all this talk about exactly that. This needs to be very thoughtful and flexible and rapidly evolving requirements for security. And there were people who said, you know, that's not the federal government I know. They, you know, if, if we got rainbows and unicorns, I'd be happy, but I'm not sure that's really what's going to come out of a regulatory process. Yeah, the regulation doesn't come from the federal government alone or for that matter, from the new statutory authorities that you might imagine alone. There are plenty of regulators already on the street. Um, They're not yet harmonized. Um, That's not from lack of noble intent, but they're not yet harmonized. Uh, And they've not yet been optimized to focus on the cyber attributes as opposed to perhaps what might be domain-specific attributes. So we need to get all of that in good order, right? Gather together the authorities we already have, Make sure that they're applied to achieve not just the kind of the legacy effects, but the cyber attributes that we're looking for. Harmonize them, figure out what then remains, and get on with that. But I wouldn't immediately go to the corner, which is sometimes perceived as a dark corner, of we're immediately right. going to strive to get regulation and impose that, apply that to an industry that loathes it. Right? And no one likes regulation yeah. for its own sake. I don't. But but I, at the end of the day, the only way we got seatbelts in cars and air safety bags was to require it um, with a degree of consultation so that we could get it right. But that's what was necessary to actually trod that path. I remember that was a very, actually, that was a remarkably painful process. It took years and years. And finally, it took the Secretary of Transportation himself sitting down and writing 
you know, a very personal, almost a judicial opinion about why he was going to do that. So it seems easy in retrospect, but it was actually a very fraught decision. It seems inevitable in retrospect, maybe not easy, but, but I can't imagine any other path that would have gotten us to where we are today, where we have at least defensively safe cars. People could still drive drunk and do, but we've gotten to a place where if you intend to use that car safely, you can. So how do you harmonize cybersecurity regulation. Is this what CISA should be doing? Should they be kind of trying to keep all of the rest of the regulators singing off of the same sheet of music? Well, I think CISA could make some important contributions to it, but but I think it might transcend their capabilities and authorities. The important contributions is CISA can help us understand what are the foundational properties that should exist right, within any digital system that delivers health, safety, life-critical functions. So I, I would look to CISA in that regard. I would look to NIST in that regard to help us understand what those properties are. And CISA, in its role as a sector risk management agency for a few of the critical sectors, can in fact then begin to effect that. But CISA doesn't control all of the regulators. No one actually controls all of the regulators. And CISA might not be the right convener of those regulators. That may well be an FCC or an, a White House function to convene those regulators, some of whom are truly independent, to then try to determine how do we, through the common interest of making sure that the ecosystem has the right properties, align, harmonize those so that we achieve the desired effect. It's going to be hard. Anybody that's been to an interagency meeting where not everyone is in a single vertical yep. knows how hard this is. But, but it's the necessary work right, of coalitions, uh, which will include, in this case, the private sector. So one of the things, there is some talk about special responsibilities for the people who have the market power and the revenue and the position in the supply chain to make this happen, even if they are taking code from the open source code base, even if they are providing a product that goes into an IoT device that is what's actually sold, trying to find the, the party that has the, the power and the revenue is part of what's talked about here. But that raises the question, I think, that is also raised by the idea of regulation, which is that both of those things tend to really create dominance for whoever has that position. Once you start regulating what people are doing and imposing obligations on them, those obligations are easier to deal with by the big guys. And they tend to say, well, I, I'm happy to have a little bit more because my competitors are not going to be able to keep up. Are we kind of making our peace with the idea that there is going to be a set of gatekeepers in some of these tech markets, more or less forever? Yeah, there are a couple of dimensions there. One, you want to make sure that you do not suppress innovation, and you want to make sure that you continue to allow for agility in the marketplace, which, which is a, a byproduct, maybe sometimes the, uh, the fuel of innovation. But at the same time, you need to know that if you're going to contribute to an ecosystem that delivers life-critical, safety-critical functions, you need to pay part of the price necessary to ensure that that is ultimately delivered. That is why this strategy, while it's going to be really hard to say that we're going to implement all of it, should not be taken piecemeal. No one of the pillars and no one of the actions inside of a pillar alone will have the desired effect. It's intended to be a complementary approach. If we, in fact, invest in a resilient future, that's one of the pillars, and we do that by incentivizing using market forces, then you'll increasingly find that it's more likely that someone that actually is playing a role in providing some kind of integrated capability can find the piece parts necessary that have been built, right, with resilience foremost in mind. 
But today, because it's a bit of a cold start, you find that those cascading dependencies are simply not there, right? At least that the kind of expectation that you're going to be able to find the piece parts that you need are not there. My bet is that 100 years ago, the airline industry found itself in the same position, which is that the airline, kind of the airplane manufacturers, didn't find that there were parts suppliers who were, who were producing aviation-grade bolts and aviation-grade cabling and so on and so forth. And that whole industry had to mature over time such that when you finally integrated something that now is this very impressive vehicle, a Boeing 787 Dreamliner, that you had an expectation that all the way downstream to the foundational piece parts, you had an expectation you could procure it. Right. This isn't something you can start up in a fortnight. But at the end of the day, the only way we're going to integrate and deliver these systems is to go all the way up the supply chain and not imagine that a miracle occurs at the time these things come together and deliver a capability, which is frankly what we do too much of today. Well, I for sure. And it's very when you start to look at what some of our open source code, which everybody is borrowing, right? That's what GitHub is for and borrowing on the assumption that it's OK and it isn't so how do we go back to this massive code, which mostly works, but has problems in it, and fix it? I mean, it's open source. Anybody can fix it, but somebody has to say, all right, it's on us. But, well, there might be a moment for the next few years where we just have to kind of see this kind of big clump of material go through the snake. Right. So, so you're not going to go back and find and root out every deficiency and every element of an open source software library. But you need to get to the foundational, the, the, the fundamentals here, which is if you learn to code right within this nation or others, you should kind of understand that you have an obligation to avoid at least the obvious pratfalls of bad code and perhaps go further to stake your reputation to this code can make a contribution. It's not entirely responsible for the security of the system that implements it. It can make a contribution both to the observable functional performance and at the same time, the resilience and the robustness. But we don't train coders to understand that they have that implicit responsibility. We need to. Yep. We must. So Paul Rosenzweig asked me this one, this question. I thought this was a great question. How will you know the strategy is a success? Uh, it's a great question. Several ways. One, if every stakeholder in the system believes and, and acts as if they have a role to play, uh, that they're no longer, I wouldn't characterize anyone in particular as doing this, but they're no longer folding their arms and saying, I hope somebody solves this problem for me that you have all the stakeholders that are identified. And that's one of the features of this is we have identified who are the accountable parties for each of these actions, that they're all in the fray. That's a leading indicator that we're on the right course to um, that we as a society are increasingly likely to collaborate and bring our collective forces together, resources together to create inherently resilient and robust systems. Now that's going to take a long time to kind of like progress through so that the systems themselves in the technology alone are inherently resilient and robust, and they'll never be able to defend themselves. But on top of that, what you'll see is increasingly collaborative actions to find, to box, to evict threats, whether those threats are kind of found in materiel or those threats are find, found in actors. Right, but, but a collaborative approach to this. And three, you begin to make actual progress on each of the identified strategic initiatives in this space. Ultimately, what you want to be able to measure is an actual reduction in the threats encountered in the space. That's going to be a difficult thing to quantify because the denominator is, is in play as much or more as the numerator is. But you want to get to that place where you're beginning to see the curve bend down. All right. Well, here's another question that 
Paul Rosenzweig suggested I ask, because he's drafted strategies when we were together at DHS, and he knows how that goes. And it never goes exactly the way you thought it would go when you started. And his question was, what did you leave out that you wish you'd left in? Oh, that is a great question. I would say the things I was pleased, let me pivot a little bit, but I'll come back to main point. The thing I'm pleased showed up in the strategy was... A, an assignment of responsibility, at least at some level, so that you don't leave this kind of reaping thinking, well, thank goodness, somebody unspecified is going to do something about something. So there are assignments of responsibility. And and some of those assignments, while specific in the assignment, are bold in the aspiration. So I think if I were to say what's left out, it's that we don't yet have the implementation plan underneath of this that actually lays out with enough specificity what we do quarter by quarter to achieve things that are probably going to take years to fully achieve. But that's, as as these strategies go, that's actually the nature of the beast. You can't put all the detail in because it then becomes so ponderous. And frankly, you can't fully predict the future. It becomes then kind of this mandate to go down a path that history will tell you was the wrong path. So, so I think we struck the right balance of having an assignment of responsibility, bold aspirations, they all complement one another, and a, an assignment of responsibility for who overall is going to drive this thing forward, the Office of the National Cyber Record, which in my view was built for this. Yep, that makes sense. I was struck by the fact that I actually did this with Control-F. If you go looking for the NSC, you really see it almost entirely in the last couple of paragraphs about implementation. And and the plan basically says, hey, NSC will take it from here. They'll oversee the implementation. And it isn't clearly a handoff, but it's an assertion of responsibility for the implementation phase. And I guess my question for you is, are you comfortable with that as, a, as an outcome? Well, I, yes and no. The way I read it is that the assignment of responsibility for overseeing the implementation is not the NSC but it is still in the executive office of the president. It's the office of the national cyber director whose superpower is its convening power and its ability to reach out across federal agencies and departments with enough resources. Currently, I think there are about 82 people in that office. Ultimately, there'll probably be a hundred to actually see that the job gets done. Am I comfortable with that? I am. Somebody at the end of the day has to be accountable to say, are we making the progress intended? But there's a large degree of distribution in the strategy of assigning you out to the various authorities and organizations who have the deep and sharp capability to pull these things off. I think that's the happy marriage you're looking for. Coherence in terms of how all the pieces come together, distribution in terms of mobilizing the whole of government, if not the whole of nation. And the reconciliation of those two going forward is where the devil in the details then become apparent. It's clear that NSC would never have and really shouldn't have the the kind of resources that ONCD has. That's just a very, it's an enormous amount of staff for White House office. And in, in my experience, White House offices, no matter how much staff they have, they're all responding to the president's daily schedule or maybe next week's daily schedule, but it's very hard for them to, to, to go off in a corner and think about things that the president isn't likely to be thinking about in the next 10 days. So it makes sense to have somebody other than NSC doing this, but are you comfortable with the idea that at the end of the day, NSC is going to say, we're making progress or we're not, we're doing it right or we're doing it wrong. And then ONCD's job is to say, we can 
muster the resources. We've already handed out responsibilities. We can tweak them. We can oversee them in a way to ensure that NSC's guidance is being carried out. Is that is that a fair assessment, or am yeah, I, I? I take uh, that I take that as an almost rhetorical, perfectly rhetorical question. The NSC should convene, establish strategic direction, foster focused and efficient discourse on possible courses of action. But it is focused on a nearer term proposition than the office of the national cyber director with respect to cyber, because it has fewer resources and, and because the sense of urgency. Hopefully one and the same is importance, not always the case, but the sense of urgency drives them to say, what are we going to do with these multiple instruments of power? The office of the national cyber director has the capabilities and I think the mandate to actually look further out to say, how do we actually bring these all to bear in a way that we realize strategic gains, not just survive the next couple of weeks or a couple of months, but how do we across the fullness of time get all this work done? I think that those two working then in a collaborative, cooperative fashion create a featureful landscape as opposed to some degree of competition. It's hard to believe there won't be some competition, but... Um, oh, of course there is. Of course there is. Yeah. People being what they are. But at the end right. of the day, it, it's, it, it's, it's a not unhealthy competition. It's one where the tension is felt in, how do I actually optimize this work by having different points of view? Sometimes conflict of ideas is a healthy thing. You don't want that to be a conflict of organizations or people. In that vein, do you hope, expect that Kemba Walden is going to be put forward as the next cyber director to be confirmed? I do. I, I think she's terrific in all the ways that matter. She's got significant private sector experience, great public sector experience. She's been co-lead in that organization from June of 2022 until the present day understands it inside out, helped build its culture and deploy the various resources that we have. I think if you're looking for somebody that can, without breaking stride, pick up the speed and drive this implementation home, she's the one, but she's also a great strategic leader. So, so I think she's a great choice. Well, and as she showed at CSIS, she's got a firm grasp on exactly how much her mother knows about cybersecurity, which is it, crucial if you're going to if you're going to resolve the real problems that we have. So let me ask a, a, a different question. This is kind of a, a, a change of pace. We just saw some new regulations or interpretations proposed. And I guess I, I'll, I'll ask it in a Paul Rosenzweig way. What's the critical sector that has the worst cybersecurity today? Oh, that's an unfair question. So, okay, I, I'll ask I it differently. Paper covers. It, it, it's unfair only in so much as I'm not sure that I'm a qualified expert on what's really the need to cover so I can give you the surface level observations, but all the vulnerabilities and all the risks haven't been known. And so I can't tell you what surprise we'll suffer next week. I, I would say, let, let me actually commend rather than kind of criticize. I would say that the financial sector has for many years been way out ahead of the back. Why? Yes. Because they've been good since the dawn of financial sectors at assessing and kind of deploying their business in the face of that, mitigating that risk on the fly. And cyber is just another domain of interest for that. I think the energy sector is doing better by the day in terms of understanding what those risks are and finally getting their hands on how do they meld information technology of an administrative sort with the operational technology that's always been their bread and butter. There are possibly some others that you know, I'm missing and kind of the heat of the moment. But, but those two tend to be the poster children for you know, who's, who's actually 
taking the kind of the fall in hand and running down the field. There are others who haven't yet begun to realize the degree of dependency they have on digital infrastructure and perhaps lacking the margins or the inspiration, margins in terms of their revenue model or the inspiration in saying, hey, I really am in the bullseye, perhaps moving too slowly for giving too great a target service for transgressors who would take advantage of that. The unfortunate truth of the matter is, is these sectors do not operate alone. Right, they're increasingly combining their efforts to pull up the functions that they care about. You think just about how an economy works. It, of course, needs a robust financial sector. It needs electricity. It needs energy. It's pipelines are going to get fuel to supply the uh, resources necessary for an energy sector. Water to perhaps cool machines, telecommunications, so on and so forth. Right? It all of a sudden becomes a horizontal as opposed to a collection of verticals. And so we just need to figure out what's the common denominator and address that and then extend that as necessary into these specific domains of interest. Okay. I will tell you that when I looked at this, and this is now several years ago for CSIS, I came to the conclusion with Jim Lewis that the very worst was water and sewage, that they had no ability to generate the revenue to cover cybersecurity, no familiarity with cybersecurity, no regulatory incentives to do cybersecurity. I don't know that anything has changed, but is there a sector you think is less prepared on the cyber front? Not asked that way. No. And I think that you've properly characterized what their challenges are right? in terms of the revenue models typically are really at the, uh, they're, they're so marginal in terms of what they have just to invest in physical real property maintenance. There's almost nothing left over to think about their dependence on digital infrastructure. That being said, um, they're also so distributed, there are thousands thousands and thousands of water companies in the country and, and therefore it's hard to get the critical mass necessary to develop and deliver the digital resilience that they might otherwise accept and help to that. So I, I agree with you. It's a really hard slope for them to climb, but climb they must. We've seen some recent examples where dependence on digital infrastructure has led to some stunning vulnerabilities in, in water companies. Just if somebody can reach in and mix chemicals at scale for your water company, and that then has not just availability consequence in terms of the water you want flow through the pipes, but it could in fact bring health and safety concerns to bear. And, and you have a problem that is long in the making, it must be solved. Yeah. And I will say, and again, you don't have to say it, having EPA as a regulator given its dearth of actual cybersecurity authority and its interest in a completely different set of problems is, isn't doing on the water and sewage folks a lot of good. But I, I push back on that slightly, not, not to kind of like argue the history of it, but the future of it, which is EPA does understand the needs of the customers who are serviced by that customer. They, like so many others, have been focused on a world that's largely made physical properties and kind of has physical realities. And they, like everybody else, has to figure out what are the cyber realities that add to that. None of the physical goes away, but the cyber properties make it a more daunting proposition. While we're trying to take advantage of the efficiencies of digital infrastructure, we enjoy the frailties of digital infrastructure. And the EPA has got to be, just like everyone else in this space, moving forward to embrace that and master that, take that on. I would not separate physical reality of a sector, water or others, from the cyber reality of the sector, because they are integrated in, in the 
systems of interest that essentially deliver the goods. And so you have to say, we're going to have to go to the dance people that we've got. So we talked a little bit about the way in which imposing cybersecurity mandates or encouraging cybersecurity investment tends to concentrate an industry. And I wanted to raise that in the context of federal procurement rules too. Obviously, there's going to be higher demand for cybersecurity maturity from everybody who's part of the federal contracting supply chain. How does that work for the small businesses, the minority-owned businesses who have found a niche but don't have large resources to put into cybersecurity? How do you think that either the rules are going to be modified for them, or they can be found the resources they need to, to actually meet the standards we want them to meet? Uh, it's a great question. It's complicated kind of in every way possible. One, there isn't a one-size-fits-all standard that you can bring to bear to say, you know, this is what excellent or superb performance looks like. It must be adjusted to the needs of a particular application. Oftentimes, a particular sector has kind of an overarching overriding influence. Two, we're moving away from compliance checklist where you say, hey, if you do the following 16 things, possibly in a given order, you're safe towards performance, which is you get to pick some of the questions as well as the answers to those questions about how you would adjust your performance against the reality of a digital infrastructure and the threats there too. And then finally, while there's, I think, an opportunity for some baseline standards that live underneath all of these sectors. We're going to have to actually trust that the extension of those into sectors of interest is going to make it look sufficiently different that it looks like we're still confused about what right looks like. But at the end of the day, that's the reality of the world we live in. Electrical yeah. sectors are different than financial sectors in the extreme application of technology to the unique needs of that sector. My long story made sure is we're going to have to, with a high degree of consultation, focus on harmonization, figure out what right looks like, enable innovation, but at the same time, some degree of standardization across the board. This is going to be something that a team can solve. I don't think you've got any one master living above the brain who could dictate the answer. So there's been some reaction now. Most of it was good. I think everybody sees this as more detailed, more achievable, more and, and yet more ambitious than efforts in the past. It did not get a fully enthusiastic response from House Republicans. They, they saw some, some good in it, but <laughs> this quote gives you a feel for how they felt about the liability and, and regulation recommendations. It's no surprise that this administration's desire for more regulation, bureaucracy, and red tape is a consistent theme in the national cybersecurity strategy. What would you say to Republicans who had that as their first reaction? First, I appreciate that much of the response was nonpartisan in nature. Even that comment is, is something that is shared by broad swaths of the private sector without regard to their political suasion. That being said, I think strategy needs to be taken in context. You can't pull these out in a word search and say, because I found the word regulation in it, the strategy must therefore be necessarily arguing for lack of context, regulation for its own sake. That's not the view. It says that regulation has always been a tool that is useful in critical functions. It must remain a tool that's used for kind of getting critical functions into the right place. And the strategy is careful. It took feedback along the way. Like I mentioned earlier on in this interview, we engaged 400 different entities 
sometimes broad swaths of people behind a single entity, but, but took the advice and counsel along the way to say that regulation out of context is never healthy. It cannot be used as a blunt force instrument. It must be done with consultation, it must be done collaboration, cooperation, some degree of self-enlightenment initiative taken by individual players and market forces. Um, at the end of the day, if you do regulation that way, you'll find that you're using it, hopefully, with the lightest possible touch. But no, like, we don't, we don't regulate for regulation's sake. That's what I would say back to anyone who kind of argues that and we don't want to use regulation as a blunt force instrument. Absolutely. But we're going to use it because we've used it in every other critical set of functions that societies depend upon. There have been no exceptions. So I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to ask for some computer advice for myself and others. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at what LastPass released recently about how they were compromised, but it turns out that all of our, if, if we used LastPass, all of our passwords have been stolen and probably decrypted by whoever pulled that off. And it was a very sophisticated attack in the sense that they went in, they got a bunch of stuff that they couldn't decrypt, and then they figured out there were only four employees at the company who actually had the ability to get to the, the main keys. And they figured out where they lived and compromised their home electronics in order to get the key. Those were very determined attackers. And the fact that we have not seen any criminals misusing those passwords has left me with the conclusion that it was probably the Chinese. But my question for you is, what lesson should we draw from this? Is it really, are we at the point where you can't trust a password manager and shouldn't be using it? In which case, it's back to little black books full of handwritten notes. And do you think that the last pass compromise is really going to turn out to have long-term espionage consequences for us. Yeah, I, I just think that the magic is the realm is in the realm of entertainment. And so if people believe that there's a single technology or a single technique that's going to solve the whole of this problem, they will be surprised yet again. I, I think what I argue is that you can't depend upon one single feature in your architecture, whether that's doctrine, whether that's technology, whether that's some skill. You have to actually apply them kind of in combination. Contemporary phrasing might be how to use felt suspenders, kind of zippers, Velcro, buttons, whatever. Bring them all to bear so that a transgressor is going to have to actually take advantage of all of your strengths as opposed to take on the one strength that you kind of have put on the table to defeat them. If you create a target and if it's a singular target as a weakness in it, essentially identified that target interface and, and it will be targeted. And so I, I'm not surprised that a singular reliance on a password manager of any stripe has ultimately shown that nothing can be perfect. It is built and operated by mankind and therefore has failed the test of perfection. We're not trying to build secure systems. I know this sounds like I'm striving for mediocrity. I'm not. The realistic goal is to build defensible systems, which must then be defended which means we have to think about how we operationally employ these and how we bring to bear multiple defensive strategies at the same time. So the transgressor has to be all of that, just one of that in order to succeed. Okay. So last question. You deserve time off, as far as I can tell from your travel schedule. You haven't gotten much, but what are you going to do next? What is it? I think Tuesday will be next. So now I'm just kidding in that regard to say that I very much enjoyed my time in the world that I had 
just loved working alongside the people that were there. I continue to enjoy their company. And while it's an extraordinary group of people who now are assembled at the White House and across federal agencies, departments, there are kind of equally extraordinary people that live broadly across all the sectors that are now kind of folks that I will collaborate with on a daily basis, whether it's at academia or, or the private sector. And so I look forward to continuing to just be in the mix. I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of thinking our way through how we think about cyber how we dispose our assets to kind of create resilience and robustness in that. How do we form partnerships that are going to make it such that each of us can contribute to the defense of all of us. And so I think you'll find me in the various highways and five ways that are trying to pull that off. I must say that at this august age that I currently enjoy, I long ago thought that I might be doing math puzzles and reading a lot. I don't think that's actually in the cards for me at the moment. I'm going to continue to run. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll bring to that all the brain power and enthusiasm that you've brought to this job. And, you know, congratulations. You hired 80 plus people. You produced a document that is as good as anybody has produced on how we should approach cybersecurity. And, you know, people will want your advice for years to come on how we ought to actually implement the the ideas that you've put into the public domain. So Chris Inglis, thank you for joining us. To our listeners, leave us comments, feedback on cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a review on iTunes and we'll read it if it's entertainingly abusive enough. This has been episode 446 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. I'll ask it in a Paul Rosenzweig way.